I'm turning back to that passage we actually read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. I want to draw our attention to two verses, although we're going to be dealing with um, at least some uh, very important parts of this chapter today. It's all important, but we're going to deal with a theme that's running through it. I want to draw your attention back to verse number 9 and 10. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Our subject this morning is that phrase in verse 10, repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing this letter to the church at Corinth, the church at Corinth, the first and second epistles to Corinth, and oftentimes the church at Corinth is known uh, for its uh, fleshliness, its desire to not be holy. We often refer to the church at Corinth as the church that was really bad. It was really uh, contrary to all that um, God intended for it to be. And of course, they had their issues. They had their problems. Uh, but I think it's a, a bit of a, an unfair assessment to say that the church at Corinth uh, was guilty of things that were not happening in other churches and not guilty of things that sadly are happening in our churches today. And this expression really, uh, early this week, um, arrested my attention. And it just got me looking, and as we're, uh, this is our scripture reading for today, and yet that phrase, repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, and began thinking a lot of different ways about that. Repentance that we don't repent of, repentance that we don't, are not sorry for, repentance for our salvation. What exactly does Paul have in mind here? Well, remember, Paul is writing the letter of 2 Corinthians uh, as an exhortation. And he's calling the people in Corinth to exercise and demonstrate holiness. He's calling them and he's pleading with the church to bear with his words, bear with what he is entreating. He's pleading with them to do. And he rejoices that there was a reception of his words, that they received this admonition to repent, this admonition to understand the difference between the sorrow of the world that brings death and the sorrow that's godly that brings life. And we see that at the end of the chapter, there's a comfort that he has, and he's comforted by the reality of another individual being there as well, and that's by a man by the name of Titus. And so we see in this particular chapter, uh, we see a number of things happening. But I, I want to draw our attention under a few different headings that I hope will help us kind of see exactly where Paul is going with this. So if, if you take notes and you want to write these things down, you certainly, um, I'll, I'll read them slowly enough that you can get them. In verses 1 through 4, I believe the Apostle Paul is giving an admonition, an exhortation regarding the filthiness of sin and the flesh. The filthiness of sin and the flesh. In verses 5 through 11, he's showing us the fruits of sorrowful repentance. The fruits of sorrowful repentance. And then verses 12 through 16, we see a picture of the faithful minister and the repentant flock. 
the faithful minister and the repentant flock. You'll notice those first four verses, and we read them, so I'm not going to read them all the way through again. But notice Paul makes mention of promises of God. He speaks of having, therefore, these promises. Notice he writes to them as dearly beloved, people that meant a great deal to him. Uh, As we learned at the 10 o'clock hour, these would classify as faithful brethren in Christ Jesus from our study of Colossians. But you'll notice that he is very direct, and he's very direct about the intent of this particular section of the letter. He says, let us, he includes himself in this admonition, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Notice Paul is admonishing believers this church at Corinth, its congregants, its flock, to cleanse themselves from all filthiness, notice this, of the flesh and the spirit. There is this grand call that we are to cleanse ourselves from those things which are contrary to the nature in which we are. Now, if we take the context that he's writing to people who are dearly beloved to him, he's writing to them not because he's got a bone to pick with them. He writes to them because he loves these people. He, he loves the fact that they are in Christ Jesus. And again, we learned a lot of principles this morning at 10, at 10 o'clock about how we ought to love one another who are faithful brethren in Christ. But notice he also says perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, these promises he speaks about are, are, are those things he talked about in previous parts of the letter. And even in our uh, scripture reading last week when we read chapter 6, these promises that we have, these promises that we are indeed a work of a faithful God. We are the work of grace. But filthiness suggests to us that there are things that can get into us that not only pollute us, but they may corrupt us. Uh, The filthiness that may get in and the filthiness that we need to be cleansed from. And so Paul says that we are perfecting this holiness. Now, what he means here is he doesn't mean that we're going to reach sinless perfection. He doesn't mean that we're going to get to a place where we can become so uh, pure in these bodies, in our flesh, that we are perfect. Uh, this perfect is in the eyes of God. It's, it's perfect in the eyes when we take into account the promises of His grace, the promises of the forgiveness of sins, the promise that He will purify us. It's not perfection in the sense of sinlessness, but it should be the object of our life. Our object of our life should be that we would be cleansed from the filthiness that our flesh brings, that we would be cleansed from the filthiness, the corruption, the pollutions of this world, and it should be the focus or the aim of our lives. Now, you'll notice that Paul makes mention about this receiving us. He says, we have wronged no man, we've corrupted no man, we've defrauded no man. And he very clearly says, I'm not speaking these things to condemn you. 
Um, this kind of teaching is often received in a very negative way. Uh, even in our churches today, people take this as saying, look, uh, this is getting into that area we, we call legalism. You're, you're basically telling us we have to live a certain way, we have to act a certain way. And in a sense, I am saying that not to your salvation, but because God's called us to holiness. God has called us to not live filthy lives. It's not legalist. We're not saying that if you live a holy life, it, you gain salvation from it. But rather, why would it not be the aim of a new creation in Christ to not want to live in holiness? So Paul says, I'm not saying these things to condemn you, but rather I am saying these things because you are in our hearts. Now notice what he says here, to die and live with you. Uh, this is not a man who is writing a hate-filled letter. He says, you are in our hearts. He has a deep affection for the Corinthian church. It's very similar to the affection we saw that he had for the church at Colossae. What he's saying here is my affection for you is not just in this life, but it's even unto death in this life and in the life to come. He had a deep affection for the church at Corinth. Sometimes we have this predisposed notion to say, you know, that, that church at Corinth must have been a really, really sick place to be a part of. It isn't it interesting that Paul writes to that church and says, you are deeply affectionate. I'm a, I deeply affection you. You are in my heart, not even in this life, but unto death. This is a man that's writing to a church not to sting them, but because he loves them. And every minister, true minister of the word, will speak these truths not to sting you, but because he loves you. That's, that's what Paul is doing here. This is, this is being written from a place of love, but he's not, he is not mincing words. He's not sparing words. He uses words like filthiness and holiness in the fear of God, and that's what his aim is here. So we see that these ministers, as he is, he says, I don't speak to condemn you. Verse four, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Paul is comforted by the truth, the promises he makes mention of, and he is, he is comforted that what he speaks to them is truthful, and it is truthful towards them all. He even says, I'm exceeding joyful even in tribulation. It was affection that led Paul to write those words. It made him his affection for them. I want us to see this first real connection here. It was Paul's affection for them that led him to speak so freely to them. You know, a, a minister, a pastor, an elder can stand up for a congregation of the flock and can speak freely with them if he has a godly affection for them. If he doesn't have an affection for that congregation, he will come across as just stinging. He will come across as just hateful. But if he has an affection and a love for that congregation, the congregation will receive it not as an accusatory obligation, but a heart out of affection. When letters would be received by various churches from Paul, sometimes those letters were received being mixed and mingled with what other false teachers were telling them about Paul. 
Paul's not really an apostle. He's not really who he says he is. So when Paul wrote that, I've not, I've not wronged any man. I've not defrauded. I've not corrupted. Again, he's speaking of his apostleship. But he speaks freely with them, and he gives glory for them. And he says, I even rejoice in my suffering. Paul was willing to suffer for the church at Corinth. The church that we would so easily say that was a filthy church. That's a church that had that really awful sin going on and we read about that nobody was dealing with. Yet Paul, he didn't mince words about that either. He said, you need to put that man out from your congregation. He wasn't doing that hatefully. He was doing that lovingly because of the purity of the church Paul had in mind. The church is to be pure. This church should be free from filthiness. And from things that would corrupt it and would defile it. That's, that's what Paul has in mind here. And those kind of things can only come about where the gospel has gone. Where the gospel has made men and women and boys and girls new creations in Christ. This is not a self-reformed life that turns over a new leaf. This is the results that the gospel produces. So Paul then in verse number 5 through verse 11 gets into the heart of the matter and he begins to describe our second heading, the fruits of sorrowful repentance. The fruits of sorrowful repentance. Look what he says, verse 5, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that had that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul says there was a continual fight, a never-ending contention with opposers. Now, I believe Paul had in mind the opposition was coming from Jews and Gentiles alike. He says there was fears, there were fightings. Notice he says, without and from within. Without, there was oppression. Without, there was fighting. Within, there were fears. There was even a fear that had taken hold inside of these churches. But then Paul says, but understand that even in these great concerns, God comforts those that are cast down. Those who are fighting from without. Those who have fears from within. I love that verse. God comforts those that are cast down. But then Paul says something interesting. He says, comforted us. God comforted us. Don't miss this. By the coming of Titus. One way God comforted the church at Corinth was sending Titus. A mere human being. He comforted Paul. Paul the great Apostle Paul was comforted by God through a man by the name of Titus. God is the God of all consolation. He is the God of all the good that we enjoy. And Paul says this man brought comfort. But then he adds to it, verse 7, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. I hope you're seeing this. Not only did he bring comfort, you brought comfort to him. It was a two-way comforting relationship. 
God was comforting Titus through the flock at Corinth, and Titus was comforting the flock at Corinth, but God was the one who was consoling and comforting. It's a great truth about God that's being mentioned here. God comforts those who are cast down. Notice he goes on, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. Now, Paul's talking about something that took place when he had written to the church at Corinth before. Something happened in that church at Corinth. You know what happened? They were brought to repentance. And repentance brings comfort. Now, we often think about repentance as one of, those, uh, one of those nasty things we don't want to deal with because if we repent, that means we acknowledge there was sin. That's what Paul's getting ready to talk about. He's going to say, I know that my previous letters and writings made you sorry. And you can almost see Paul arguing with himself a bit as he's writing of the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, though I made you sorry with a letter. Paul says, I know my words made you feel a certain way. I do not repent. Paul is not saying, I'm not a sinner. Paul is saying, I do not repent that my letter made you sorry. Now remember, he's already established the fact that the reason things are being said is because of my deep affection for you, not my hatred or my desire to sting you, but rather out of my affection for you, I wrote you a letter that brought you to a sorry condition. I don't repent of that. But then he says, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now Paul introduces really the difference between true repentance unto life and repentance unto death. Repentance that is only for a season or repentance that is temporary is not a true repentance. True repentance brings a change of mind. It brings a change of heart. It brings a change of direction. It's a turning away from sin and a turning to God. This is not just, A, I'm sorry, and then I go back and live the way I was living. No, there is a true turning or a true repentance. Sorrow that is according to the will of God is repentance that is always has the glory of God in mind. Repentance, that's true repentance, godly sorrow, that's truly sorrowful, always aims at the glory of God, not just a temporary removal or a release of the consequences. True repentance is not born by the human spirit. It's born by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, He who is the third of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit is the grantor and the giver of true repentance. That's why it is possible for a minister to stand up for a congregation of people and call them to repent for 52 weeks in a row and nothing happened. But when the Spirit of God does the work, it's a true repentance that comes and people are not just sorry they got caught. There is a repentance with the glory of God in mind and there's a desire to put off the filthiness of the flesh. There's a desire to put off corruptible things and they deal with, in this case, what they had sin in the camp. This is a true repentance. 
Now, Paul, again, you see his humanity. You see how he expresses. But notice he says in verse 9, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry. In other words, he said, My joy is not brought that I just made you sorry, but rather that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. Paul is commending this church and saying what what you received was not a temporary emotional repentance, but rather you received the proper repentance. This type of repentance that is wrought by the Spirit of God humbles the heart. True repentance does not elevate, it does not lift up your heart, It humbles you. True repentance is not coming to God with your list of what I will do. Lord, if you want me to repent, here's my conditions for my repentance. No, it humbles your heart and it leaves you even thinking, I should not even be looking to God because I am so unworthy of this. It's humility. True repentance is humility. True repentance is also submissive. It's not, I'm sorry, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. No, it's, Lord, forgive me, and I'm submitted to your will. It's a submissive spirit. John Owen has an entire book on mortifying the flesh, the mortification of sin. I would encourage each one of you to read it, not as a replacement to the Word of God. But John Owen takes that very approach that you have to kill sin every day. That's where we've heard that becomes a Christian cliche. Kill sin every day or every day sin will be killing you. That, that's John Owen is spot on right about that. You continue to allow that besetting sin into your life. You continue to allow more filthiness, a little bit more corruption, a little bit more defilement. It's killing you, folks. It's killing you every single day. It's like, it's like playing with a rattlesnake and you think I'm not going to get bit. And yet, Paul admonishes them. He says, listen, I know this made you sorry, but I rejoice that it brought you to sorrowful repentance. This type of repentance moves us to walk in the newness of life. This repentance is always connected with saving faith in Christ. True repentance always takes us back to the cross, and it always takes us back to the atoning work of Christ. It takes us back to dark Gethsemane like we read. It helps us sing a song like the power of the cross. Oh, to see the dawn. It is is humbling. It brings us to this place that we now have an interest in Christ, not an indifference. You have to wonder that a person that claims to be saved by Christ is indifferent as to whether or not they should live a holy life or not. There is no room for indifference. There is no room to say, I don't have to pay attention to that. You don't have to, but I think it's fair to say, are you truly a new creation in Christ if you have no desire to cleanse yourself from the filthiness of sin? I think it's a fair assessment. That if a person says, I'm saved, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but I have no desire to be holy, I have no desire to live, to get rid of the filthiness in my life, 
isn't that enough room to question whether or not there's true saving faith? There's a great difference between sorrow that's of a godly sort and the sorrow of this world. I see the sorrowness of the world every day as a school teacher. I see it every day when a child gets caught and they're sorry they got caught. And they will repent with the hopes of the mean teacher lessening the penalty. That's not repentance. That's, I'm sorry I got caught and I don't like the consequences because I know the consequences, Mr. Cochran, because you already told us what the consequences were. And we know you to be a man of your word. If you say this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. But they'll plead for mercy. Are they really upset that they broke the law of the classroom or are they more upset that they got caught? It's the latter. And that's how we treat God in our repentance. We simply say, God, I, I got caught. Remove the consequences. Well, here's the reality of the scripture. The Bible nowhere promises you that repentance removes the consequences. Nowhere does it say if you repent, the consequences are removed. So that's never the basis of your repentance is so I get the consequences removed. Those are set. And as we've said many times, there are people, this man standing up behind the sacred desk before you who still deal with the consequences of sin committed years ago. You know where some of those consequences are? Right here between the ears. Knowing I'm forgiven, knowing God has cleansed me, but yet the conscience reminds me, and Satan himself reminds me, do you know what you really are? And all I can say is, yes, God knows who I really am, and he still saved me and loves me. The consequences are not the reason you repent. The removal is not. It's the glory of God. And if your repentance is not about the glory of God, you are repenting only a worldly sorrow, and it's not true repentance. There's a tremendous difference between the two. Paul is talking about the fruits of true repentance, the fruits of sorrowful repentance, where the heart is actually changed, the life is changed. Our desires are changed. Our actions are changed. He clearly says, verse 10, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Even, even repentance that leads to the salvation of the soul is not something that we don't do or we don't want. But the sorrow of the world works death. There is repentance unto life and there's repentance unto death. But notice this. Here's the fruit, verse 11. For behold, this self-same thing, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness, make note of that word, what carefulness it wrought in you. You see what's happening here? This true repentance led you to have a spirit of carefulness. Not only carefulness, and notice it wrought in you. The true repentance wrought this in you. It birthed this in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, 
What indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. A godly manner, a strong longing to represent God and to truly demonstrate you are God's people. You know what they started to do? They started to have a true hatred of sin. One thing I'm convinced in myself, and I'm convinced in many that I speak to, and again, I'm not speaking at anybody directly today, I'm speaking in general terms, we do not truly have indignation at our own sin. We are, we are oftentimes, we are not appalled at our own sin you realize that there is no darkness at all in our holy God. Wednesday night, we're learning that. In Him, there is no darkness at all. Not an ounce of sin. Not an ounce of unholiness. In Him is perfectly light. The holiness of God in us is not perfection. But we ought to hate sin the way God hates it. And if we just got a glimpse of how hated sin is we would be angry at our own sin and i'm not talking about just being bothered because of the consequences i'm talking about the fact that i am i am just appalled when paul wrote romans 7 this was not some little conversation he's having with himself saying, you know, I, I just keep doing what I shouldn't do and I don't do the things I should do. He was writing to himself about himself saying, I hate the fact that I am not indignant enough against my sin. If Paul said that, I don't dare say I've surpassed Paul in that area. I dare say I'm probably more on the other side of that that I, as John Owen wrote, I'm not killing sin. It's killing me. They were not only indignation, they were not only indignant at their own selves and their own sin, it wrought a fear, a carefulness, a watchfulness. It wrought desire in them to be reconciled with God, to be restored into a proper fellowship with Him. It led them to be zealous. It led them to endeavor to make it right with those that they had injured by their sin. How many times have we sinned against someone else and actually gone back to make that sin right? Oh, we don't practice that in our modern day New Testament churches. There's a pattern in the Bible that suggests that that should be the case. Oh, no, I'm clear with God. No, you ought to go and be clear with the person that you sinned against. You see, not all repentance is true. Paul, when he wrote, in the, or when, when speaking of Paul in the book of Acts, in chapter number 11, there is, Peter is, is speaking of that, and Paul would make reference to that in other letters. There's a repentance that he speaks about Luke in the book of Acts makes a mention about, about repentance in which there is no sign or evidence of spiritual life. 
Uh, he says in verse 17, he says, For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Notice God to the Gentiles granted. That word granted means to give. Repentance is a gift from God. It is not a human work. God appoints when and how repentance enters into the life. Now, before we say, oh, that's my excuse to keep on living like I should, you've misunderstood. That actually is more of the call to repent. It's the same command and the same call that commands the unbeliever here today to repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is not an invitation to consider. It's a command to obey. And you say, well, I'm not one of the elect. I'm not one. I'm not one who God has called. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. He will not turn any away. If you sit here today and you say, listen, I'm not going to repent, preacher, of whatever you're talking about today because God hasn't granted me the gift of repentance, you're misunderstanding in the same way that if you say today, I'm not getting saved because God's not elected me. Those are straw man arguments, folks. If you, are, if you are appalled by the sin that you're allowing to root into your life and get hold of you, repent of that sin. Don't take Scripture and try to make it sound like, i got to wait till God grants it. You repent of your sins, it is going to be of the godly sort. But if it's the type where we're talking here, where, look, I'm just repentant of my sin because I don't want my wife to find out, I don't want my husband to find out, I don't want my parents to find out, I just don't want the consequences. You're misunderstanding true repentance. Repentance is because you have disobeyed and violated a holy God. And until we get a glimpse of God's holiness, we will always have a misunderstanding even of what salvation is. Repentance that Paul wrote about, repentance that Luke talks about in, in, in Acts is not a repentance that's produced in the heart of man. It's produced in the heart by the Spirit. It's not repentance that's produced only by the emotions and human power. Let me give you a list of some things that will lead a person to think repentance is true repentance. A legal fear. A desire for moral reformation. Even a remorse for sin does not guarantee that that's true godly repentance. What about this one? A desire for heaven may lead to repentance. Because they believe that if I do this, I pray this, heaven is my reward. That makes repentance a work. Sometimes just a mere confession of sin we might mistake for true repentance. You might possess all of those things. Today, you might have something in your life that there's a legal fear that you have. You have a desire for moral reformation. You want to be a, good, a better man, a better woman, a better son, a better daughter. You might even be sorry that you committed a sin. You might possess all those things and still not have repentance unto life. It's a repentance unto death. 
Now, I don't have time to elaborate on all these, and you can study these for yourself. And as I tell you, study to show yourself approved. If you find I'm wrong in this statement, then that's certainly, that's certainly your prerogative. We can talk about it, but I want you to think about this. I can give you a couple examples of people in the Bible who we see, do, see a false sense of repentance. We see it in Cain. We see it in Esau. We see it in Saul, not the Apostle Paul, but Saul, Old Testament. Ahab. We see it in Judas. We see it in Simon Magus. And we see it in Felix. You can study the lives of all of those men and you will find that none of them had a true repentance. And we can only surmise based upon biblical evidence that they all perished under the wrath of God. Yet repentance appeared to be in each one of those cases. But it was not godly, sorrowful repentance that led to life. It was repentance that led to death. You see, repentance unto life is a gift of God's grace. It's produced by the regenerating work of the Spirit. How does the Spirit of God regenerate the heart? Through the revelation of Christ. The heart is regenerated by the Spirit, not by just simply revealing your own shortcomings, but by revealing the Christ of the Gospel into your heart so that you see Christ and you see your need of Him. That's why it is beyond folly to stand and tell somebody and ask them the question as your evangelism, do you want to go to heaven? That has led to more false occurrences of repentance than probably any other question has been asked in human history. Because it's not dealing with what's the reason behind all that. Where did the holiness of God come into that equation? That the reason I can't get to heaven is because I am a sinner, a wicked, depraved, vile worm, the Bible says. And I can't get there. Because my sin has separated me from a holy God. And yet church after church after church keeps standing with the responsibility to preach the truth. And they say, if you want to go to heaven, pray this prayer. And people walk out the front doors and they think, I repented last Sunday. And their life doesn't change. Their heart doesn't change. They go the same places. They say the same things. They do the same things. They look the same way. They talk the same way. And they say, but I got my ticket to heaven. That's emotional false repentance. And you are still under the wrath of God. There has to be an acknowledgement, not only of my own sin, but the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak of Himself. He speaks of Christ. This repentance unto life that's mentioned in Acts and even what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians always has the elements of conviction and conversion. It leads to their desire to put off the filthy things of the flesh. And there's the perseverance. We continue. You see, godly repentance brings deep humility before God. It brings a hatred of sin. Not just the sin of the world. Your own sin. Brings humility about our faith in Christ. It brings a new heart. It brings a new life. The prayer for one another ought to be that God will bestow that upon every one of us. 
But then Paul, as he brings this to a close, this third heading, the faithful minister and the repentant flock, this might seem like a sidelight to hear something so heavy and so deep, but this is connected. Paul says, wherefore, that means it's connected. Though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul starts speaking about his motives. He said, the reason I wrote this letter was not for the sinner's cause or for what he had done wrong, but for our care for you that in the sight of God might appear unto you. He wanted them to see God. He ends it with a bit of a commendation. He says, therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we were we for the joy of Titus. Remember Titus we talked about about 20 minutes ago because his spirit was refreshed by you all. When Titus came into that church, he was comforted, he was refreshed because he walked into a repentant church. Imagine that. I can't tell you for certain in all the, the years that God's given me to live, I can't, I can't tell you with 100% certainty that I've been in a church where it was a repentant church to where this kind of an occurrence took place. I can tell you there's been times in the life and ministry of this church and the life and the ministry of the church God had me at before and even in my own walk with God where I've, we've had seasons of that where there seemed to be a real humility before God and a real hatred of sin and a real desire to put off the filthy things of the flesh. I can't tell you if it was a fully repentant church, but I can tell you that Paul says Titus was refreshed When's the last time you actually saw the church at Corinth being mentioned as a refreshing church? But yet it's the one we hold up. I heard somebody recently say you should never name your church Corinth Baptist Church because that's the most wicked church on the planet. You don't understand. You don't understand if you think that that's the way it's looked at. Springfield Reformed Baptist Church could have a bad name to it. But if it's a repentant church, if it's a church that truly has a hatred for, for sin and a humility before God and a desire to put off the filthy, there's nothing more comforting than that. Some would say, no, we're more comforted by how much we bring in, how much we pay our leaders, our elders, and our pastors. No. Titus was refreshed that he walked into a repentant church who wanted to put off the filthiness of the flesh. They didn't want the corruption. They didn't want the pollution. They wanted to put it off. Paul was not disappointed concerning the church at Corinth. He could with joy declare the confidence that he had because of what had taken place. It goes on, Paul says, for if I boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed, but as we spoke all, spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you. Why was Titus's uh, comfort more and affection more abundant? He's, the Bible tells us the answer while he remembereth the obedience of you all. What brought Titus the most joy was their obedience. Their obedience to obey, their obedience that brought them to repentance, their obedience that brought them, here's what it says, here's how he found them. The obedience of you all 
how with fear and trembling you received him. Even in the way the church at Corinth received Titus was a very telling characteristic of a repentant church. They received him. They received him how? With fear and trembling. Because they were afraid and in awe of Titus? Absolutely not. If the most fearful person in the church is the man standing behind the pulpit, if the man behind the pulpit makes you fear and tremble because of his person, I'm going to say it carefully, that's a wolf. We're not fearful and trembling of a man who's been called to an office. We're fearing and trembling because we're in the sight and the presence of God. That's 100% different. I have sadly heard preachers stand up and actually admit my congregation is scared to death of me. And I've said, sir, you should not be a pastor. You should not be an elder because you have no affection for that church. Listen, the man that stands behind this pulpit is just as much in need of what you're hearing today. I need to hear this just as much as you do. I still, for the life of me, cannot figure out why in the world God would put me in front of you. I have no human answer for it. I simply know I am just as fallible and I am just as depraved and I am just as tempted to just repent, to get it out of the way, to just repent because I want the consequences removed. And yet, here's a picture of a faithful minister. Titus comes in and the church is repentant. There's comfort on both sides. Why? Because they see the glory of God in it. Great comfort and joy follows godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Sin, sin always brings grief to the sinner. Repentance brings joy. You know the story of the sin of Achan in the Old Testament. Sin doesn't just bring grief to the individual sinner, it brings grief to the whole camp. So when you say, this is my sin alone, no, your sin affects everybody else, not just your family, it affects the church. My sin affects you. If I decide I'm just gonna, I'm gonna feed my besetting sin this week, it's not just affecting me, it's affecting you. Both Paul and Titus rejoiced that the Corinthians were repentant, that they were comforted, they were joyful. Let me just remind you of Luke 15, 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. You could sit here today and say, I'm glad I don't need repentance. I'm glad I don't have to repent. It's a great joy and a comfort to not only pastors and elders, but an entire congregation to see a flock being brought to repentance unto life and not repentance unto death. There is a repentance which leads not to life, but unto death. Again, 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Salvation, eternal life, is found in turning from sin and turning to God. Repentance has never just been, I'm turning from my sin. It is a turn from our sin and a turning to God. 
Yes, the Word of God clearly teaches repentance itself is a gift of God. It's granted by Him. It's through His sovereign grace, through Jesus Christ. Again, we take comfort, we take joy in knowing that there is joy and comfort to come in a church and in a people that's repentant. But we also have to be warned today, not just as a church, but also as an individual here today, there is a false emotional repentance that leads to death, but there's also a repentance that leads unto life. Repentance unto life is through Jesus Christ alone. It is to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ alone as the only remedy, the only payment for your sin. It's not your good works. It's not your good intentions. It's not your good motives. It's not your good heart. I won't give you the full context, but recently I heard someone say, why should we believe what you have to say? And the person said, because I'm a good person. If we understand the word of God, there is none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seek after God. Their throat is an open sepulcher. But in the mind of ourselves, we can say, I am a good person. There is none good but one. That's Jesus Christ himself. We cannot approach God even on a presupposition that we're a good person. Because when you do that, you are presupposing that you have enough morality to even get God's ear. And you don't. I don't. My goodness in and of myself does not get me anything with God. My acceptance is not based upon what I do, what I give, what I say, what I look like. I could live a perfectly moral life. There are religious denominations around this country that are much more outwardly living the Christian life than we are. Yet they're dead in their trespasses and sins because they believe that that outward is what's getting them acceptance with God and it's doing no such thing. They will perish and die under the wrath of God unless they believe the gospel, repent of their sins, trust in Christ alone. There is only one way of salvation and it's through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, passages like this are startling to the mind. They shake us, humanly speaking. They might even make us emotional. But Father, we are not desiring today a human response to things that we hear. We are pleading with the God of all creation. We are pleading that today those that are still under the condemning wrath of God, those that are still dead in their trespasses and sins, would today be delivered from that. That they would be brought to repentance, repentance unto life, repentance to salvation not to be repented of. That they would come to know Christ as their Savior, that they would see their sin that has separated them from a holy God. That we might see souls redeemed today, Father, we pray and we plead with you according to your sovereign pleasure and your sovereign will. But Lord, we also pray for believers today. Believers who are in Christ. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But yet are living maybe in unknown by anyone else 
living in unrepentant sin. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction where need be, that we would be humbled realizing that our sin is a sin still against a holy, righteous God. And how can we sin and neglect so great a salvation? Father, we know we cannot do the work today. May the Holy Spirit of God move in our midst and may Christ be exalted and glorified and magnified. For it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.